We are continuing in our series in Galatians this morning, so if you could grab your Bibles and turn over to the book of Galatians. We're kicking off chapter 2 today. Uh, so we've been seeing that uh, through, through our study so far that the book of, book of Galatians is just showing us the importance of the truth of the gospel, right? And that's the truth that we are saved by faith alone. We are saved on the merit of Christ's righteousness. We also see that in Galatia, the church was having to deal with these false teachers, these, this false message, uh, this idea that they were, they were looking to change the subject from Jesus' finished work to man's additional requirements, and they were disguising this as holiness. But we have learned that to change the subject from Jesus to man is to leave Jesus altogether, right? And so Paul is writing Galatians to preserve the truth of the gospel, and he wants to defend the flock against these false teachers who are attacking both the gospel that Paul was preaching and uh, the man Paul was himself. And so we're seeing that we need to be ready to defend the truth of the gospel when it's under attack by deceit and fallacy. And so I just have to take a quick moment. I told her I was going to talk about her. Um, McKay has, my, my daughter McKay, we got, I put up a family picture here, on the beach. Um, very different weather than what we have today. McKay uh, has been such an awesome student. She's been such a good uh, student at school. She works so incredibly hard. Actually, she and Weston both have just been really awesome. It's been so cool to see that. I think part of what uh, has made her year this year so, so great is she has a really good uh, group of classmates. They just, they're kind to each other. They encourage one another. And so it was making me think about uh, some things last year, while McKay still did great, there were just some, some interactions with other students that just weren't ideal. There was one particular classmate who just was kind of up and down with her kindness towards McKay and others, and uh, she was starting to create some discord among some of the students. And all the while, whenever asked about it, she would kind of present a different truth. She would kind of uh, change what was really going on just to, to fit what she needed here. And so it came to a point where the teacher was like, we need to end this. But she wanted to see how these, at the time, these old eighth grade girls could handle this. So she sat these, these eighth grade girls at a table and she said, okay, can you all figure this out? And so McKay being our, our rule follower and she is the one that holds what is right and wrong close to her at all times and it's so wonderful. She took it upon herself to just mediate this table of eight-year-olds. It was awesome. And so she with all the confidence and kindness that she has in her, her heart, she addressed the table. She spoke directly to this little girl, and she, she said she needs to stop lying, that she needs, to, she needs to address what's really going on here, and she needs to make things right. How cool is that? We were, Blythe and I were just so proud to hear this story because here McKay was faced with opposition. She was faced with this classmate who was presenting a distortion of what was true, but she didn't back down. She didn't concede or compromise, but rather she was calling for truth to be declared, and she wanted to see unity within this table of girls, you know, as an eighth, gr eighth grader can explain it. But she was ready to defend because she believed in what she knew to be right and true. And church, we need to have the same readiness because there's going to be attacks from false gospels in the world, and there's going to be issues within the church that will have the potential 
to compromise the way the gospel message is delivered, and we need to be ready to defend that. And so, our main point this morning is defend the gospel to preserve the truth of the gospel. We have to call out heresy. We have to combat hypocrisy. We have to strip away every other thing that we have added of our own ideas to the gospel so that when, so then we can gather together, we can be united as one body, and we can declare that Jesus is all that we need. So we're going to see in our passage this morning what, just what Paul was up against and why his ability to defend the gospel was just so important in this moment so that when we face the heresy and the hypocrisy outside and, yes, inside the church, we can then speak the message of the gospel with assurance. So, as I said, we're going to be in chapter 2 of Galatians. Uh, we're looking at uh, verses 1 through 14. Of course, if you don't have a Bible, there's the, the Bible's somewhere on the rows here you can grab. Um, if you're joining us online, welcome. Grab your Bible. Uh, read along with us here. We're going to just look at the first five verses, just kind of ease ourselves in here. So, starting in verse 1, it says this. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they may, might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. So from this passage, you see our first point this morning is to defend the gospel against heresy. So just so, I think, I think we all have an idea of that, but I'll do like a little Webster's Defines moments here. So, so the basic idea of heresy is it's a theological doctrine or it's a system rejected as false. Okay, that's not technically the Webster one, but I think we, I think we have the idea. Okay, so Paul is making efforts here to defend his ministry. Um, he's defending his message, and he's continuing to do that in this chapter here, and he's giving details of his visit to Jerusalem. If you remember... In chapter 1, he uh, had already talked about traveling to Jerusalem. He met with Peter for just a really short time. So now, years later, he's, he's back in Jerusalem. This time it's because he got a vision from the Lord. He was like, go, go to Jerusalem. So Paul's not, he's not going to necessarily prove anything to these apostles, but he's going because he wants to partner with them for the sake of God's mission. And so he was ready. He had a defense for the gospel message that he was delivering. Because he was seeing that these false teachers believed that the real gospel was Jesus and works. To these teachers, yes, Jesus' work was good, but it required just a little bit more effort, a little more work on our part to, to really be in favor with God. But to Paul, this wasn't just like a little slight deviation, like, oh, okay, we'll just disagree on this one thing. No. This was a desertion of God. This was an absolute rejection of the very foundations of the gospel that he was preaching. He wasn't going to budge because he knew that if he were to do this, it would make less of Christ. And that's ultimately what these other teachers were. They were Christ reducers. So we see 
He takes Barnabas, who's a Jew, and the apostles knew him, but he also takes Titus, who's a Gentile, who the apostles didn't know. And I think, really, Titus might have been one of the most important people at this meeting because Titus being a Gentile, he wasn't circumcised. And I have to say, never will the topic of circumcision come up more than on a Sunday morning. There's the joke. <laughs> so hopefully Titus wasn't shy about this, but uh, it's, it's in record now. So. But we do know that Titus received the gospel, he believed in Jesus, and he was a Christian. But he wasn't a Jew, okay? So Paul knew this. T- Titus was the example of the gospel that Paul was preaching to the Gentiles. And so in verse 2, Paul says that he set before the apostles the gospel that he proclaimed, kind of laid it out for them, what he was sharing with the Gentiles. And he was doing this, he said, to make sure he wasn't running in vain. In other words, he wanted to make sure that he wasn't wasting his time trying to unify the church if these Jerusalem leaders weren't going to accept any non-Jewish Christians. So Paul was on this mission. He was going to continue this mission, and he was ready to defend against this inaccurate gospel that he was seeing. So, as I said, he brought this gospel, he preached to the Gentiles, he brought along a real, live, genuine Gentile with him as proof of the power of Christ's salvation in the gospel. So this was his defense. This was like his exhibit A in his defense of the gospel. He was defending it by pointing to the effects of the gospel. And this was a This was a really important moment in the history of the church because you have to think, would they demand circumcision? Yikes. Or accept him as a brother in Christ? Titus is probably just wondering, like, what's going to happen here? And I think for us being so far removed, it's kind of hard to maybe see and fully grasp the enormity of this moment because had the Jerusalem apostles forced circumcision on Titus and then tried to proclaim that it was necessary for salvation, the entire foundation of justification by faith alone that Paul was preaching would have begun to crumble and the gospel's potency would have really been severely damaged in this moment. So Paul saw the heresy. He saw the heresy in in, in this distortion of Jesus' accomplished work. Where Jesus died for all to be saved, he saw that there were still desires for this man-made limitation and condition which was just directly in opposition to the message delivered from Jesus and then given to Paul. So, he recognized his responsibility in defending the true gospel because he knew exactly what was at stake in this moment. Now, thankfully, we see that the gospel prevailed. They were in agreement here. Titus wasn't pressured to be circumcised. Cool. Um, They were in agreement that Jesus... Uh, saved him by faith alone. It was the work and the person of the Savior who set his people right with God. So this was, this was just a huge success that, that has now allowed a unified clarity of the gospel message for us now today because Paul was ready and able to defend the gospel against these false claims from these false teachers. Obviously, Not everyone is happy in this moment uh, because we have to know that whenever the gospel goes out, whenever people are saved, there's always going to be dissent. There's always going to be pushback. And so in this instance here, we see 
whoever these false brothers are, they're, they're brought in, they're sneaking in to spy on this situation. As Paul, Paul's very clear that they're not just like hanging in the back. He knows exactly what's what is the danger here. He says that they're there to steal their freedom in Christ and capture them in slavery because of their false gospel. And you'll notice Paul is really... Uh, he's really smart with his words here. He includes himself as he talks about the danger of slavery in these false gospels. But if you think about it, Paul is a Jew. He, in this particular debate, Paul was, Paul was in the clear. He, he, if he really wanted to, he could have just gone with it. But he knew that any compromise of the gospel was slavery for any of us who call on the name of Jesus. But this is what heresy does. It strips power from Jesus and then it attempts to put it in the hands of man. But Paul prevailed because Jesus prevailed first. And in his preservation, the gospel was preserved for all generations. So now there's, there's a warning for us in this. What we do with the gospel message we see can have a, a long-lasting impact. It has the ability to stretch down through future generations and change the way the world then interacts with God's gospel. And that is why Paul instructs us to pay close attention to our doctrine. And I would bet, looking out in this room, that there is multiple testimonies of people here who was the, they were the first in their family to finally truly grasp the real understanding of the gospel, then come to know Jesus as your Savior. And, and just by aligning yourself now with the true gospel, you now have the opportunity to alter the course of generations after you. And so, we cannot, we cannot let false doctrine or gospel contradictions or just straight up deceitful practices get in the way of the true message of the gospel. Because really what these, what these false teachers wanted wasn't to preserve the gospel. They wanted to change the gospel for themselves. They wanted to undo what Jesus had done in his finished work. And this is dangerous. And it's still very dangerous for us today. So here's, here's a way that I think that you can know how you're relating to the gospel of grace. Just ask yourself this. How do you live in light of the gospel? Because how you live helps you see what you really believe. So for instance, when you sin, what's the first thought that comes to mind about God? Do you believe that you have to, you have to clean yourself up, you have to fix yourself by your own works first before you can come to him for forgiveness? Or do you immediately run to him with conviction in your heart and cling to Christ's righteousness alone. And then maybe for other people, when they sin, do you believe that they can find freedom in Christ right then? Or are you secretly holding some external standards over them that you've created before they can be right with him? In other words, is the gospel sufficient for you in what you believe and how you live? These false teachers, they were holding other people to a different standard, and it was a standard that they themselves were setting. So you have to wonder, why, why would they set this standard? I think it's probably because 
they were able to achieve it. It was achievable for them. They themselves were able to do it because they had the pen in their hands and they were just, they were marking the boundaries and they were just seeing maybe if anyone else could get their act together. But that's not the grace of God. These false teachers, they drew the line and they kept everyone else out. But God erases those lines. And with the blood of Jesus, he draws this wider circle encompassing all people groups of all backgrounds, whoever will believe in him. And it includes these people that these false teachers would have never, ever thought to include. Because when heresy slips in and it attempts to compromise the freedom in Christ we experience through the gospel, we must be ready to defend it, just like Paul is here. To preserve the gospel, do not yield in submission. Not even for a moment, Paul says. Not even when it puts us in opposition. Not even when it puts us in the spotlight. Not even when it stands against every other message. Not even when we experience threats of persecution. Yes, even then. We have to be ready with the knowledge of the gospel to be confident in what the true message is and what it has done for us. We have to be ready. So as we continue on here, we're going to see other benefits of our ability to defend the gospel. So if you'll follow along with me, starting in verse 6, it says this, And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised. For he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Okay, so point number two this morning is defend the gospel against disunity. Okay, so awesome. We see that the gospel prevailed here. And more than that, through his defense of the gospel, now Paul has found unity among the, the apostles of Jesus. Obviously, this is unsurprising to us today. We, we have the whole New Testament, but... Just place yourself in, in their shoes. Place yourself in Paul's shoes or like his sandals, I guess. His gospel was God, God-given. There, he had no doubts about that, clearly. But he also, he couldn't have known exactly how this would, would play out. Would they accept the gospel that he presented or would they be swayed by these outside opinions? I'll say too, it, it sounds like Paul is kind of downplaying the apostles' leadership and their importance, you know, he's saying things like, they seem to be influential, what they, ma- what they were makes no difference to me. I promise he's not just like throwing shade here. Um, he's, he's merely saying that God's grace levels all of us. That it doesn't matter to Paul who Peter and James and John weren't, once were. All that matters to him is the gospel that they proclaim, which is the same gospel that he proclaims. So he's not intimidated by their status, 
because they stand together as one, preaching the only good news that saves sinners. So thankfully, the, the Jerusalem leaders, they listened, they accepted it as the same revelation they had from Jesus. They didn't add or alter anything because they recognized that Paul's ministry was effective and valid. And so Paul took the gospel to the Gentiles. Peter took the gospel to the Jews. It was the same message, just different people groups, and Jesus unifying the world around his good news. But obviously, there were things that could pretty easily get in the way of this unity. When heretical views that distort the gospel, that are clearly issues that they need to address, come in, these distortions then allow for these additional rules to be put into place that then just create these further hurdles for just an average person to, to struggle for them to come close in relationship with Jesus. This is something that they faced a lot and something that we can refer to as it's called hedge laws. And so just a little background on that. Shortly after Moses came down from the mountain with the law, he came down with the, the big old tablets, right? So the people of God, they began to try to understand like, what this all means, how does it apply to their lives, like how, how do they obey all of this? And they were so serious about obeying God's word that just to protect themselves from even coming close to breaking these commandments, they set up these hedges around the law, so kind of like walls around walls, just extra protection. So things like don't take the Lord's name in vain became don't even speak his name, or uh, don't boil a calf in its mother's milk, that was a thing, uh, became, don't eat dairy and milk at the same meal. And so I, I have to think that those who were building these hedges, they really did desire to want to be obedient. But what they ended up doing was they create this impossible system of rules and regulations that a person couldn't possibly keep up with, all of them. These hedges, these additions ended up becoming equal to the laws that God had given them. We also see that Jesus faced this situation head-on in multiple, multiple interactions with the Pharisees, our good old Pharisees, right? So many of his conversations with them was centering on the law and him just trying to tear down these hedges that they themselves had built up. And these were walls that really just kept people distant from the kingdom of God and kept them away from the gospel. And so one example in Mark chapter 7, so the the Pharisees are calling out to Jesus. They're like, hey, uh, why are some of the disciples, that's my Pharisee voice, hey, um, some of your disciples are eating with unwashed hands. That's against the, the, the traditions of the elders. And so Jesus' response here will be up on the screen, Mark 7, sorry, in verse 6, he says, And he said to them, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. And that's like a yikes moment right there, like, Jesus just knows exactly how to rebuke in only the way that Jesus can. It's, it's so sweet. It's so good. <laughs> but these Pharisees, they had this strict observance of the law. And they, 
they believed that they could then usher in this restoration of Israel's power. So they upheld these laws and they were commanding everyone else to do the same thing. They were believing that this would, their own work would then put them in God's favor. But ultimately, we know that the people were just, they were hurt twofold by these extra rules. On, on one hand, as I said, there were so many rules, they just, they weighed so heavily on the people, that's, that's all they could even think about. On the other hand, the Pharisees, they just added a whole extra layer of their own self-righteousness in their belief that they were so much better than everyone else because they were able to keep these laws. So much so that they just, they missed the original point of the law, which was to drive them toward God in recognition of their need for a savior. Okay, so now what does that have to do with us? Well, actually, quite a lot. Because if we're honest, there's always, in some way, a trend for us towards self-righteousness. So we want to we be able to check off our little lists. We want to take little bite-sized chunks and pieces of the law so that then we can obey those and then feel good about ourselves and then it makes it so much easier for us to see how we match up to other people, right? Just think about the additions that you have built up to follow Jesus. I remember for me, for the longest time, really into some of my adulthood, I had this view that just the existence of alcohol was sinful. And so I didn't touch it, you don't, you don't talk about it, you aren't around it. But really, the only thing that, that it did for me was it gave me a feeling of superiority. I also remember growing up with like purity rings, the purity culture was huge. And so I took, I went through this pledge to abstain before I probably really even knew how any of that worked that I was abstaining from, if we're honest. But that pledge made me feel like I had done something even holier than someone else who hadn't taken the pledge. Now, of course, this is, the point is not in favor or against alcohol. That's not my point here, and I'm certainly not saying that we shouldn't strive for purity. But what were the real motives in these walls that I built up? Because if I'm honest, at the core, it was really just my own feeling of this spiritual superiority I had over other people because of these views. All it did was it separated me from all those sinners out there that took like a sip of beer, like sinners in their dirt water, taking their drinks. <laughs> Still gross. But I held these things up as holy right alongside God's holiness. They were equal in my mind. And these things can originally maybe come from a desire to love God more, but all too often in our brokenness, it becomes less about loving God and more about just avoiding this personal condemnation. And so it moves the Christian beyond the love and freedom they have in Christ into just living in this constant fear of being out of favor with him. And just like in Paul's time, it then divides us, it separates us, from the people uh, of God to those who, who can keep up and those who can't, right? And when that happens, how, how can there possibly be any unity in the gospel when we just keep creating these additions to the gospel? And Paul was really smart here when he's, when he's kind of laying out this, 
unified message here. You know, you see things in like verse 7. It says, he had been entrusted with the gospel just as Peter had. In verse 8, he says, God worked through Peter just as he had worked through him. And so Paul was trying to make this really clear point to connect their messages as one and the same. And then as they recognize that their gospel is that same message, it then unifies their mission. And they're clear that it's the accomplished work of Jesus above anything else that we attempt and attempt to add. As we find unity in the gospel, it helps us defend against these hedges, these additional laws that we add ourselves. And unity, unity in the gospel, it is, it's necessary, and it is such a worthy goal. But the truth is, we're broken people, right? Let's just be honest. And along the way, our conflicts, they're going to move from these external heretics to these internal issues within the body. And we see that, unfortunately, immediately following this affirmation of unity. So we're going to finish our passage here, um, starting in verse 11. Follow along with me. It says, But when Cephas, that's Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came back, when, he, when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? So this one might be, maybe it's, this one's a little harder for you, but we see that we must defend the gospel against hypocrisy. So when you, when you think about this moment here, it's a pretty dramatic and tense moment. I mean, Paul is publicly confronting like one of the main guys here, Peter, and it's, it's all happening at like, like the Antioch Christian potluck. I don't know what it was. It was some, something they were eating at. We, they still do potlucks then, I'm sure. And just a little bit of background to the Church of Antioch, just to kind of underline why this was such a big deal. Antioch was one of the largest cities in the Roman Empire, and it made up, was made up of mostly Gentile Christians, and it was a really important city for uh, Jewish and Gentile relations. It's actually where uh, followers of Christ were first called Christians. Uh, you see that in Acts 11. So we already saw that in Jerusalem, Peter and Paul were in agreement. But already we're seeing uh, this confrontation needed because of uh, just a separation of understanding of the gospel. And this exchange between Peter and Paul shows us what happens when the culture we've created goes against the gospel doctrine we proclaim. Because it is, it is possible to unsay with our actions what we say with our mouths, and that is hypocrisy on display. Unfortunately, it's, it's far too common. And when it happens inside the church, it's more than just a disappointment. It is, it is a direct denial of the good news. It is a rejection of the work of Christ. And think, think about this. Consider this about Peter. 
it seems that as long as Peter was in Jerusalem, he was comfortable. Everyone in his circle was pretty much ethnic Jews, and they were, but they were followers of Christ. And then furthermore, as long as he was in Antioch and the crowd was like only Gentiles, Peter seemed to be comfortable there. But as soon as these two worlds merged, he instantly reverted to this political, cultural pressure rather than using this opportunity to show the truth of the gospel in a very tangible way. He seemed so concerned with protecting this very specific Jewish religious identity. And then in doing so, he influenced negatively Barnabas, who was in that meeting with them, and the other Jewish people that were there to do the same thing, to act out on the same hypocrisy. And so that's why Paul knew that he had to oppose Peter to his face. It wasn't that Peter was just merely following a preference. He was giving into this cultural hypocrisy that was just not at all aligned with the gospel that they were just unified on. And then in doing so, this, this action told the Gentiles in Antioch that they couldn't be set right with God unless they followed these rules of abstaining from certain foods. So it's just, they were just adding law on top of grace, which erases grace entirely. It wasn't that Peter was simply mistaken. He was out of step with the truth of the gospel. And, and remember, too, Peter knew better. Just really quickly here, in, in Acts 10, he received a vision which commanded him to kill and eat all kinds of animals. And God said then that what he had made clean do not call common. So Peter's already learning. Remember, according to the law of Moses then, certain animals were unclean and you couldn't eat them. But in Christ's completed work, God was saying he was freed from the law. And Peter also understood this. Uh, there was a time a Gentile Cornelius had had called him to his city, and Peter went, and as he did, he said, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. So God used specifically the eating of animals to reveal to Peter that Gentiles are acceptable. But when faced with this exact moment of living out that belief, being in this mixed company, he chose the path of tradition and law. He chose now to separate himself from the Gentiles, seemingly in favor of the Jews. Even though he knew that the Gentiles were accepted by God as they were, that they didn't have to become Jews, they didn't have to eat certain foods to become Christians, in this moment it didn't stop Peter from acting out his own prejudices. And so, also, Paul reminds Peter that he doesn't even live under this strict obedience anymore. He's, he's over there like, I've seen you at the Red Lobster. You're eating that stuff. You're eating your bacon. Like, you're not kosher here. But then suddenly, people show up and you act like these laws are so important to you all the time. Paul did this because he knew what was at stake. He knew the influence. This wasn't just a thing about seating arrangements or table manners or being a good host. This wasn't like a, a personal conflict or personal sin that, uh, of Peter's that Paul needed to address uh, privately 
which we know we are called to do in circum, cer- certain circumstances. But Paul knew that this was a matter of the truth of the gospel. What we believe must determine how we live. Peter's actions denied the truth of the gospel. He knew, he knew that everyone is made righteous based on Christ's finished work, but he acted as if it was the law that set you right with God. And so Paul needed, he had to clear up this hypocritical doctrinal issue. When we act out of step with what we believe, we have to stop and we need to come right back to that right belief and reinforce it and then learn to defend it. And you can do that simply just by knowing God's word. Study with fellow believers. Don't try to do the work that Jesus has already done. Encourage and, and hold each other accountable in your spiritual walk. Be ready to defend the gospel Christ has given you. The truth is, I think we all unfortunately know this, hypocrisy is bound to show up in the church. The church is made up of broken people. And it's going to show up, and it will show up in different ways, maybe some more subtly, some more blatant. I've seen churches partnering with, with guest speakers who are, just being honest, are just flat out not in aligned with the true gospel message. But they'll bring them in, they'll partner with them because, I don't know, fill seats or their, their gospel message has been, has been altered in some way. We're also seeing churches cater to culture or an unwillingness at, at the very least to speak, speak out or speak truth into those matters because oftentimes it's easier to, to do that than to stand in opposition or to speak that truth. And there are common issues that can spring up that even we as a church, we as Harvest Church, need to guard ourselves against. Things like, you know, the church can become too focused on elevating our own preferences to the level of Scripture. Now, of course, we have, we have a, a way of doing church that we believe is, is solidly in the foundation of the gospel. And we have certain styles, but church, let me say this, preferences don't save anyone. Only Jesus can do that. And so here at Harvest, we want to keep the main thing, the main thing, which is Jesus. I think the church can also care more about commitment while uh, inadvertently neglecting people. We see that Jesus actually condemned the Pharisees, again, for loving, he said, what they were doing more than why they were doing it. We can't, we can't just love the system we've created more than God, more than the people that the system was created to serve and love. Don't get me wrong, commitment is important and it is good. We should be, we should be committed to the things God has called us to as a church, as individual followers of Christ, but not to the point that it neglects those very things that God has called us to serve. I know just thinking about myself, there, there are Sundays that I've just been so focused on my tasks at hand, things that I needed to get done before and after service. I know that I've probably missed, 
opportunities just to love and care for someone else in those moments. We have to be ready as a church to stand against these kinds of hypocritical tendencies. Okay, so that's a lot of information. What do we do with all this, right? How do we prepare ourselves to defend the gospel? So just really quickly here, I just want to touch on a couple of things, a couple of questions you can ask yourself to help in your defense of the gospel. And I'll just cover these really briefly. First question is, do I recognize the severity of false doctrine? The Bible is really clear about the dangers of false doctrine and those who proclaim false gospel. The Bible says there's so much at stake in what we and others believe and teach, and it warns us to make sure we aren't leading people away from God. So do you recognize that? Second, ask yourself, then, am I ready to defend the gospel? Second Timothy, uh, Paul tells us to have nothing to do with foolish controversies that breed quarrels. So is your defense helpful? Is it accurate? And are you ready and able to bring correction that brings glory to God first and bring a person closer to the right thinking of Jesus? Then finally, ask yourself, am I defending the gospel with grace? It's not enough for us just to identify a misleading voice and then just kind of go off the rails and say and do whatever we're feeling in that moment. It's, it is possible to give direct defense and even end in disagreement while still showing love and care for another person. Be thoughtful and articulate in your concerns rather than embarrass or, or, or pressure or shame. As I said in the beginning, defend the gospel to preserve the truth of the gospel. Paul knew that to avoid the true gospel message from falling into hypocrisy or having these additional hedges of laws and heresy, that we must defend the true gospel message. And to most effectively defend the gospel, we must know the gospel. It has to be etched into our minds and into our hearts. So just a bunch of questions I'll throw at you right here. Where are you lacking now in your defense? Because you need to be able to recognize false aspects of God's word. Or do you right now lack unity with other believers because you have trapped yourself under the weight of so much of your own self-righteousness? Or do you distance yourself from others because you've built up these unnecessary walls that they couldn't possibly reach? Instead of walking together in grace toward the Father and allowing Him to change your heart and your life. Is your life reflecting what you claim to believe? Because we can see Christ in your life if you really live out the things in the gospel message that you believe. What is keeping you from living that out right now? What are you allowing in your life to be more important than the defense of the gospel? Don't be imprisoned when you can have freedom in Christ. Don't even for a moment yield in submission so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you, for the people in your life, for future generations who need the saving truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So would you stand with me? Let's pray 
and then we'll sing a song that declares our belief in the gospel. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for the clarity of your word, the clarity of your gospel message that you have given to us so graciously in your word. We thank you for the life of Paul and for his ability to defend the gospel message with boldness, with assurance. God, let us see the severity of false doctrine. Let us see the severity of hypocrisy in our lives so that we can we can put our trust and our faith in your gospel message, your saving, saving grace in our lives. God, let us look to you alone. Give us the wisdom, the ability to speak truth into our lives and to the lives of those around us. Let us be ready to defend the gospel. Saying that we believe in Jesus alone. We believe in your word. And we look to you, our one true gospel. It's your name.